There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, Sari. Hi, Jen. Are you ready for our interview with Mary Trump? I'm all set for our interview with Mary Trump. Very excited for this one. Um, everyone has heard Mary Trump's name since she released this tell-all book about her uncle, Donald Trump. Her parents were Fred Jr. and Mary Trump. She's also a psychologist, a business person, now an author. And I'm really excited to hear everything she has to say about her uncle, about herself, and what it took to take on the most powerful man in the free world. <laughs> and I would right. love to hear what you're excited about. Mary's done a lot of interviews, but I'm not sure that anybody's talked to her from the perspective of women in power and the Trump family, right? I mean, first of all, she had to have the courage to take on the man with the most power in the free world. But also, Trump is obviously a man that is threatened by women with power. And just within that own family, there are some really interesting dynamics around gender roles and who has the real power and how men in that family are threatened um, by women with power. And, you know, here is a woman from within his own family, what is supposed to be his safe space. And of all places, a woman, a woman emerges from within his own family to take him on and to have a conversation with Mary that looks at it through that prism, I think that's something people haven't heard. And I think what Mary's experience sort of shows is if you have the courage to tell the truth, there's some, there's liberation in that, but there's also some, some kind of protection in that too. So I want to explore that as well. All right, let's get to it. Let's do it. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Dr. Mary Trump, thank you for being with us today. It's great to be here, Jen. Cheers, because I have a glass of rosé. <laughs> and Mary has a bass. Because now. Because free advertising. We live in a dystopian society, and it's also after five. Not that the second is a requirement. You're on a new and noteworthy podcast per um, Apple. That's what we were oh, discussing before you got on. Yeah. It's, that's so cool. So the podcast is about women in power, right? And there's so many interesting dynamics to consider in your own situation. You know, you are a woman in a powerful family that doesn't respect women, but has a lot of strong women in it. And you took on the most powerful man in the world who is a member of your family. It's a lot going on there. You know, I've written two books, so I know the first words of your book are really important to you. Yeah. You chose to start your book talking about your name. 
I'd always liked my name. You put it in the past tense, but you chose to start your book talking about that. Were you trying to reclaim your name? Well, I don't think I can anymore. And I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to have to change it at some point, which makes me sad. So it wasn't about reclaiming it so much as it was, if this makes sense, about staking a claim to it. Yep. And it was important for me that people understood that it isn't because of the people I'm related to, not even my dad. It's because when I was a kid at camp, that's what everybody called me. So it was literally my name. Mm-hmm. I think there were probably people at camp who didn't even know if I had a first name. It kind of, as I think I write, it just suited me. Right. It had no other associations. Nobody knew who my, my family was outside of New York. The camp I went to was on Cape Cod. It was a very powerful thing mm-hmm. for me, my name. You know, people say I, I look like a Trump. And I hope that's not true anymore. <laughs> but at the time, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, when I was in college and Donald was just getting to be known outside of New York, uh-huh. I think I started in 83 and I, I went to Tufts. So um, I was still away from the worst of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, a professor of mine who my, I think the first time I met said, you know, I introduced myself because I was in one of her courses and she said, Oh, that's so Dickensian. And it is, as it turns out. But I wasn't entirely sure why she said it at the time, but it turns out without knowing it, it was a pretty accurate assessment. You just said that you think that you, you will likely have to change it. Why do you think you will have to change it? Just because of the associations. I think either way, it's going to get worse. Hmm. Either way, meaning if he wins or not, doesn't win. Well, if he successfully cheats again or loses. <laughs> Thank you. Successfully cheats again. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It's very important to me, honestly, that that be said. I think it would actually be worse if if he successfully cheats again than it would be if he lost. But mm-hmm. if there's any justice in the world and he loses, then, you know, it's going to be dragged through the mud as it should be. So, So can you tell us about why you decided to take on the most powerful man in the world. It just fascinates me when when it's put in those terms because Donald is just like the weakest person I've right. ever met in my life. <laughs> I and, know. Um, you know, by virtue of all sorts of horrible accidents, he is where he is, but it doesn't make him strong or powerful. Um, so I never, ever thought about it in those terms at all. You know, the history of women who take on figures with a lot of power is they usually get pretty beaten up. Um, (laughs) It's my experience, uh, certainly what I've witnessed. (laughs) But, you know, you don't have to write this book. You see what happens to women that uh, do engage in this fight. What was the tipping point that you felt like this was something you needed to do? So, you know, I would have written this a long time ago if it had occurred to me if I thought it mattered. The tipping point was my realizing that it might matter. Before the election, he was getting away with everything. I didn't think he was going to win. There wouldn't have been time to write a book anyway. Right. And, um, you know, because I'm a Trump, I suffer from learned helplessness as much as everybody else <laughs> in my family does. And I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything concrete. You know, it would have been, I was disinherited. Right. They would have portrayed me that way as this disgruntled, bitter person. Right. 
it wasn't until I had, you know, actual documents in my hand that proved something that I felt, all right, I can do this now. And I did. And, you know, it's thanks almost entirely to Suzanne Craig and Russ Butner, who, well, Suzanne Craig in particular, because she knocked on my door and didn't give up. She pursued me for months. Right. So explain, explain all that. These are the New York Times reporters that were trying to find taxes, financial information on him. Yeah. Um, in April of 2017, I went to the White House for my aunt's birthday party. It sounded really it fun, was, Mary. Oh, God. It, it honestly, it, I wasn't doing well before then. And I just went into this very steep slide afterwards. Yeah. So a couple of months after that, uh, there was a knock. And I usually don't answer my door. I don't know what possessed me, but I did. And it was clearly not uh, one of my neighbors. <laughs> so you know, I'm Suzanne Craig, we're writing an article that we think could change the financial history of the Trump family. And we believe that you have documents that could help us. I had no idea what she was talking about, because the documents she was referring to were from a lawsuit that I had engaged in with them 20 years earlier. Right. When my grandfather died, I found out that he disinherited me, like completely. Yeah. So um, your whole family, your, your yeah. whole branch of the family, right? Your whole, your dad's whole gone, yeah. gone. So there was a lawsuit which ended very, very badly for me. But in a lawsuit of that kind, there's something called the 2-3 rule. You get all of the financial statements three years earlier and two years after the date of the will because uh-huh. I was contesting the will. So I said, get out of here. I don't talk to reporters. I was also really angry because uh, nobody had bothered to talk to me before the election. Yeah, particularly New York um, Times. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it wasn't certainly wasn't her fault, but yeah. it, it was like, really now, like, what difference is it, is it going to make? And finally, it's a very long story, but um, I had broken my foot and I sat on my couch for four months with my leg up. And finally, I just called her and I said, OK, what do you need? And she reminded me I had these documents and where they were. Uh, I went and I got them. It wasn't quite that simple. Three, four weeks later. I brought all of them back to my house and handed them off. And it was the 40,000 pages of documents that helped them show uh, that Donald, not only was he not a self-made man, mm-hmm. but he had gotten in excess of $410 million from my grandfather uh, since he was a toddler. Yeah. And during the lawsuit, they told me that my grandfather's estate was worth $30 million. Oh. So there you go. There you go. Some of the numbers don't seem to add up. Um, you know, you just talked about learned helplessness and that you needed the documents. I do find some of the most compelling parts of the book are not about the documents. It's about your own experiences in this family. And particularly, I find the women characters the most interesting. The men are sort of simplistic, right? You sort of understand mm-hmm. what's happening there. With the, with the exception of my dad, I'll say. Right. Right. We don't get enough of him. Yeah. Well, there that you was go. an editorial choice, but okay. Yeah. But I mean, and, you know, he just died so young, you didn't get enough of him. Yeah. You wrote, when I finally realized that my grandfather didn't care what I accomplished or contributed and that my own unrealistic expectations were paralyzing me, I still felt that only a grand gesture would set it right. It wasn't enough for me to volunteer at an organization helping Syrian Syrian refugees. I had to take Donald down. Only a grand gesture would set it right. Do you feel like you've set it right? I continue to be embarrassed by that line because what I didn't make clear is like, I don't think I need to take him down or that I even can. Right. It was how I was feeling in that specific moment right. because I was trapped on my couch and feeling 
paralyzed the way I had so often in my life. I really couldn't do anything other than this. And it needed to be done. And I don't know, it it felt like an obligation. Uh, I mean, I did it willingly and at times enthusiastically, right. but it, it didn't feel like something I had a choice about. So is it enough? I don't think so. But I I hope it helps. You know, I hope it has some impact. Like, that's why I think it's hysterical when people say, oh, you just did it to cash in or for re-. mm-hmm. like, really, <laughs> really, because this is so much fun. Right. right. <laughs> this is so fun to air all this and to trudge and over to through it all and worry about the safety of my family. You know, it's yeah. all fun. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I'm going to I'm going to keep trying to get under his skin because I am. I continue to be, and this has been my philosophy all along. Yeah. We need to pile on and pile on and pile on until this is all over. Do you think that works for his political opponents? Do you think that Joe Biden should be trying to get under his skin? Of course. Say more. What does it yield? Well, we know that no matter what, at least up until this point, not one elected Republican, not one person in the cabinet has done the right thing. Mm-hmm. They're all in on this. Right. It's despicable, but here we are. So it's not like we'll find out tomorrow that, you know, he coordinated with Vladimir Putin to spread COVID-19 or something. Right. The Republicans still wouldn't do anything. So the only potential we have to change that particular narrative is to push him to the point where he acts in a way that's undeniably crazy. I mean, he does this every day, I understand, but I mean, like the kind of thing. We're close to that now, I think. We are close. I mean, he's getting into a sealed car with Secret Service agents. That was a moment like that. Yeah. It was insane. It was insane. Yelling out to Maria Bartiromo at the end of an interview, indict Hillary Clinton apropos of nothing. That's kind of insane. Telling people, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. That's kind of insane. It's insane. It's dangerous. And as so is so often the case with him, it's utterly self-defeating. So, (laughs) right? It really is. Um, So we need to get to the point where even Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr can no longer pretend that this is tenable. you know, and it's going to take something quite extraordinary, mm-hmm. but that's my goal. Yeah. And we all have to do our part, whatever it is. You say he's not powerful, he's weak, but, you know, he does have the Republican Party wrapped around his finger. You know, I, I saw that, you know, happen in real time. I remember in 2015 when he said about John McCain, I prefer my, my heroes to not get captured. And I thought, okay, he's going to have to apologize for that. And then when he didn't, I realized that something had been unleashed in the Republican Party that was a wholly different kind of beast, you know, because Mm -hmm. the sort of guardrails on the political system are shame and then pressure from your other colleagues to keep you in check. And those are totally absent here. I mean, the source of his power in politics now is clear because he he did wrestle control of the Republican Party. But what is it about his character that you think allows him to intimidate people this way? Or is it just intimidation? I see it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. I think a large part of the Republican Party uh, is 
made up of true believers. And I think that's when really weak people identify with another really weak person who, by virtue of luck or whatever the case may be, has leveraged that weakness somehow to get power. Mm -hmm. It's why people vote against their self-interest when it comes to lowering taxes on rich people. Because, well, you know, I might be rich someday, too. It's the aspiration and they're buying into. It, yes, yeah. it's, as Donald would say, aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> he never said that because um, he doesn't know what he means. But, um, yeah, that's the mechanism. Yeah. I think for the most part, though, it's that Donald's really useful to smarter, more powerful people. Um, Mitch McConnell, Bill Barr, people like that, they revile him, you know. Right. But because of him, they're getting everything they want which I think, in the, certainly in the case of Bill Barr, is to turn the United States into a theocratic apartheid state. Um, Apparently. Right? Yeah, it's bizarre, because I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't think that about Bill Barr, the Bill Barr of the past, but the Bill Barr of now, you, you know, somebody who is an institu- institutionalist who understands the damage that's being done and, like, fully buys into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't it's know. It's reveling in it yeah. and, and perpetuating. Yeah, I don't know what else you to know, think. But make no mistake. Uh, if this election is close, Bill Barr is going to make up some laws that, uh, you know, make it clear that yeah. it's illegal for Donald to lose. <laughs> you know? Right, 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 right. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Mary Trump. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back with Mary Trump, who just wrote a tell-all book about her uncle, Donald Trump. It seemed like your grandparents had very clearly defined gender roles in the House. You said that Fred's permission was sought whether it was needed or not. On the one hand, you were taught, defer to Fred, or at least act like you're deferring to Fred. But really, Fred didn't have the power. You know, like, yeah, mm, that's fascinating. I wish I had seen it that way um, because it, what it felt like was or what I think was actually going on was that we all knew that he didn't give a shit about any of us except Donald. Mm-hmm. And before that, my father, but not in a good way. Mm-hmm. And I think asking his permission was a way to convince ourselves that he did care. That if he, he yeah, if you needed his permission, it meant that like you were worth something to him. You're right. Marianne, the firstborn, was saddled with being a smart, ambitious girl in a misogynistic family. Because she was a girl, Freddie, the oldest boy, got all of her father's attention. She was left to align herself with her mother, who had no power in the house. 
Marianne ended up being a federal judge. Did Marianne's path guide you at all? Uh, You also pursued uh, your own career, something very much outside of the family business, despite being told by your grandfather that you should be a receptionist. Tell us about that journey. Interestingly, I mean, for myself, I was lucky to be one generation removed from the worst of it. Right. So people in my family not caring about what I did was sort of liberating in a way. I mean, don't get me wrong. It it doesn't mean that I was full of self-confidence. It just meant that I didn't ultimately care one way or the other what they thought. I was going to do what I felt I needed to do. With Marianne, what we see, though, is that, yes, she was very, she got out of a horrible first marriage. She got through law school. She had a kid in school. When she went to law school, she became a respected prosecutor, but that wasn't enough. And that's the thing. It's like nothing's ever enough. enough. Like volunteering to help steer your enrichment. Nope. Right. (laughs) Got to take on, right. Take on Donald's. Right. Right. So she wanted to be a federal judge or felt that that was something that, you know, would, I guess, make up for something. Yet, she couldn't trust her own reputation or her own intrinsic worth. She had to ask for a favor. And not just any favor. She had to ask for a favor from like one of the worst human beings who ever lived, who was Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. um, who, because he had an inside connection to the Reagan administration, was able to you know make a phone call and she got the nomination to the federal bench, which I don't know, would she have gotten it anyway? Possibly. I have no idea. But the fact that like, she didn't have any faith in that. And she did not have any most... faith in her own ability to do this. She needed, she needed to have somebody connected to her family pull a lever. As she said, I wasn't going to leave it to chance. Right. Okay. But one of the most striking things she ever said to me, and this was when she was almost 80, she said, I'm still looking for my father's approval. Yeah. I never had that burden. That's horrible. I mean, I guess that's where... The break that you had with, you know, via your grandfather's will, put you on a different path. Is that how you? Uh, no, no. It started when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. Two crucially important things about my childhood set me on a different course. One was growing up in Jamaica, Queens, which despite the fact that it was literally the next town over from where my grandparents lived, was worlds apart. Jamaica Estates, where my grandparents lived and my aunts mm-hmm. and uncles and dad grew up, was upper middle class, 100% white, 100% Christian, nothing at all like the very urban Jamaica I grew up in that was at the time I was, I think it was like 70% black, 30% white. Mm-hmm. I took the subway to school. You know, I lived in a shitty apartment building that my grandfather owned, um, you know, so it was just, it grounded me. Right. And the second thing was camp. You know, I got to get out of the city for a couple of months and uh, and this extraordinarily beautiful sailing camp where I learned to appreciate nature and did things I never would have done, like sailing and shooting archery and all that, those camp things. So, like, I was never like any of them, ever, which is good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It seems it seems like that environment uh, this like toxic masculinity environment that uh, the rest of them were raised in seems pretty destructive. I assume sort of these experiences with your family is what 
probe you to your chosen career? Uh, is that nope, no? not even a little bit. I'm sorry. I wish I had some interesting story. About <laughs> well, you that, do have a lot of interesting stories, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but not about this. No, it was just it was an ex- means to an end. I originally, was wanted to get my PhD in English lit, and that didn't work out. And I, ironically, always wanted to be a writer. But for various reasons, I found myself getting a PhD in psych and then I got disinherited and I'm like, oh my God, I need to, you know, because getting disinherited didn't mean that I suddenly had no no means Mm -hmm. at all, you know, so I was very lucky. I was able to afford school Mm -hmm. and um, I felt like, you know, since I was already studying psychology that I should just take it to the next level. It would be a safe career to have, you know, it would be a good living and, you know, I had a family. Yeah. to support. But it seems like it gave you some tools to to parse this out and look at it. Oh, I mean, if the only good thing that came out of my getting a PhD in clinical psych was being able to write this book, then I'm good with it. You wrote about that. Um, this is about uh, uh, Fred Trump, the grandfather. In other words, protecting his love for his father was more important than protecting himself from his father's abuse. Talking about Donald. Donald would have taken his father's treatment of his brother at face value. Dad's not trying to hurt Freddie. He's only trying to teach us how to be real men. And Freddie's failing. That really struck me because I thought now he's starting to just create this alternative reality where the father is a loving figure and anyone that isn't in his approval is doing something wrong. I mean, do, do you write that, understand that, and think that Donald and his siblings just didn't really have a chance given the model they were given? Yeah, I want to be really careful here because I I don't want to let him off the hook. Yeah, He's 100% responsible for everything he's done, the damage he's caused, the death he's causing. But... You know, one way to think about it is my grandparents had five children uh-huh. and every single one of them is a destroyed human being to one degree or another. Yeah. You know, that's not accidental. One or two, maybe. Right. Right. But five. Right. No. So Donald didn't have a choice as a kid. It was the combination of the toxic masculinity you mentioned, because, you know, in that passage you just read, we're talking about. Okay, Freddie's failing at whatever it is that Fred needs him to be Mm -hmm. in order to be worthy of taking over the empire. Well, what was Freddie? Freddie was sensitive. Freddie was kind. Mm -hmm. Freddie was generous. Freddie was funny. Freddie's friends adored him. Mm -hmm. And Freddie had interests outside of real estate. I mean, don't get me wrong. My father had every intention of taking over the family business. He worked very hard at it. But my grandfather decided that it, you know, because he didn't want my father there because he didn't respect him for whatever reason, he made it impossible. So that was the example held up to Donald about what not to be. And I think we see how that's played out. And then we have the toxic positivity. So those two things combined are are exactly why we're here. And then you you diagnose him, right? As a sociopath, right? My grandfather? Yeah, my grandfather was a sociopath. Obviously, I wasn't around when my dad was a kid. Yeah. But if you extrapolate backwards from my dad's death and the things that led up to that, there's no other conclusion you can draw. And also, I knew my grandfather long enough to know. I mean, he was a man without empathy. He was a man 
who had absolutely no interest in his children, mm-hmm. except insofar as they could be of use to him. And the only children he was interested in were my father and Donald. And both of them, in very different ways, were completely destroyed by the ways in which my grandfather tried to use them. I mean, it's just extraordinary mm-hmm. what this man did and the pleasure he took in humiliating people, especially people who were in some way dependent on him. You think Donald has the same narcissism, antisocial um, personality disorder? Yeah, you know, I don't diagnose Donald because I, it's technically impossible to diagnose somebody. Mm-hmm. You don't, uh, you know, you need to follow certain protocols. But I, I also do think it's irrelevant in the book. What I do is I, I lay out various criteria that apply to certain personality disorders so people can kind of understand, right. you know, not just what the possibilities are, but just how complex the comorbidities might yes. be. Yes. I mean, he's a deeply, I, you know, I don't need to diagnose him to know that he's a deeply, deeply sick, psychologically disordered man. Which I thought in reading, you know, how you do lay that out, I thought that's important not so we can judge Donald and think, oh, therefore he's a bad guy, but that you get, you understand this is why he can be so unfeeling. It doesn't mean that we, you know, the Americans that don't understand him are looking at this wrong or don't get him. It's that he's not capable of that. I don't know. I just found this sort of clinical description powerful and even chilling um, when you strip away some of the personality and all of the attention that he gets. This is someone who's not capable of these of these emotions and chooses to just not see reality and never, never, ever take accountability for something and never will. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good way to put it. And what I would also say that it is true to some extent that he doesn't have the feelings, but what is perhaps more dangerous is that he has them, doesn't have access to them. Right. And that's, you know, in the circumstances under which we're currently living, worse. We got to go pay some bills, so stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back with Mary Trump. In your own family, it seems like men have had the opportunity to fail upward as men only have the opportunity to do. 
I think it's interesting in this world, men may be at a disadvantage for getting too used to that perk because as women, we've always had to work hard, uh, harder than, uh, than most of our male colleagues. And we're not slowing down anytime soon, even as we do work our way up in the world and uh, garner more power. But in your family, men especially have failed upward. The, the amazing thing, mm-hmm. it's, it's like really the most amazing thing my grandfather did. He created this myth about Donald that was that we right. all bought into, that was unshakable, that he was the best, the greatest, the richest, the smartest. I mean, just extraordinary. And, you know, Marianne's accomplishments right. always paled in comparison if they were even mentioned at all. And the same thing happened with my dad. I mean, when he died, I only thought he was an alcoholic loser. I didn't know much about his days as a pilot or anything, really. Right. So it, it it was quite an astonishing bit of alchemy. That's why I feel like there are bigger primal, I mean, not to sound like too mystical, but I do believe that there's a bigger primal battle of this. He's sort of the quintessential, just blowhard, gas bag. Last gasp. Last gasp of like <laughs> these guys that are just full of shit. Yeah. And in case we didn't understand that we still had you know, we still had to battle misogyny. We still had to be aware of all the gender bias. We still had to be aware of all the crazy family dynamics that make us inherit all of this weird um, stuff where we feel helpless or doubt ourselves. In case you didn't understand that there was still more to unpack there, let's have Donald Trump be president of the United States so that it's all brought to the forefront. And, you know, you experience that dynamics in your family a powerful man favoring a son, you know, making it appear as if they hold the keys to everything and their approval means everything. And then a whole country, you know, not a whole country, but half of a country buying into that, right? There's just like so much to be learned from your own familial experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they're fighting so hard. Fighting so hard to stay there. Yeah. Because Republicans knew that this could be their last chance because demographics are totally against right, them. Right. It, the, the whole as, thing, as like Donald a, Trump is like the personification of the last gas with the Republican Party hanging on to like the all white voting. Yeah. And that's that's why they went in so hard for him and were willing to overlook the most egregious mm. things he said and did mm. in the general election. And that's why they're fighting so hard now and are go- totally going to let him cheat, steal his way to the White House again, and that's why they're jamming through this horrific woman mm-hmm. who, Amy I mean, as far as I'm, yeah. all you need to know about her is she's willing to accept this corrupt nomination. <laughs> Disqualified. <laughs> you know. Because um, well they know. <laughs> but what, yeah, and they also know that if they can pull this off, we never have to have another free and fair election again. And what do you think, what do you think it looks like, Mary? What do you think that Donald is prepared to do? Let's paint a scenario. Let's say uh, election night, it looks like Biden has a majority of the popular vote, but there's enough states outstanding that the Electoral College is unclear. Do you have an image in your head of what happens? What's he willing to do to stay in power? There's literally only one good scenario here. Mm -hmm. And that's if Joe Biden wins in a total landslide and there's no question electorally or otherwise, that mm-hmm. he's won by a significant margin. That's the only good case. And if scenario. not, what happens? What do you um, think Donald does? What is he capable of doing? How far will he take this? Oh, he's capable of anything. So let's let's be really clear about that. You know, when people say 
that he he's claiming he won't accept the results. I say, who fucking cares? It's not up to him to accept the results. You know, if he wants to have a temper tantrum about it, that's his problem. I'm much more concerned about the ways in which he's preparing his followers mm-hmm. to commit voter intimidation. I'm much more concerned about the ways in which he's using the levers of power and the institutions that he controls and is dismantling all at the same time to change the results or, you know, suppress more votes and then give him the opportunity if it's close or if we don't get the results right away to stir things up. You know, Donald is not a particularly intelligent person, but he knows what's at stake. Mm -hmm. Let's put it this way. He should absolutely go to prison forever. And he knows that it's a possibility, at least that he'll get indicted. And what's much more worrisome to me is that the the people around him who who are benefiting so enormously uh, from having him in the Oval Office are also going to stop at nothing. Because they also, um, to help him, they also could be vulnerable to prison, right? I mean, they they also could be indicted. They could be facing in a in a just world yeah i mean he could fight this out in the courts right what are his options his options are to try to pursue a victory in the courts um which i presume that he will do and there's a plenty of republican judges mm-hmm. that could force that to happen but mm-hmm. is he set on chaos and destruction as a way to keep him in power even if that means fomenting violence on the streets from his supporters. If fomenting violence is going to get him what he wants, he doesn't care because he's he's a physical coward. He's very happy to have other people to do his dirty work for him. Mm-hmm. That's another reason we need a Biden landslide because in that case, nobody's going to back him up. What would the point be? Right. You know, somebody like Bill Barr isn't going to throw away what little is left of his credibility fighting a totally lost cause and Donald will then have no choice but to pretend that he doesn't care. You know, he'll say, I was the best thing that ever happened in this country. You're so ungrateful. I'm going to go do something really important, like be a commentator on OAN or whatever he's going to do. And then hopefully somebody will show up in handcuffs and drag him away. But don't get me wrong. I'm not sanguine about the ability of our institutions to protect us. However, I think I I have more faith in them than I do in his individual followers. And it's not that I think they can, you know, necessarily change anything, but they can cause a lot of damage. Right. Uh, you know, just as with COVID. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good it's, analogy. It's, yeah. Donald got sick, but how many people has he killed? Right. It's going to be the same thing. You know, he may be the problem, but it's innocent Americans who are going to pay the price for his hubris and his treason. On that, I'm going to ask one last question. <laughs> too uplifting. No, well, you know, these are the these are the days we are lucky to live in. These are the times. I know. I asked Twitter. I say I'm going to talk to you know. I said I was going to talk to Mary Trump, and I got the most responses ever. But one one that I thought was good was, um, how do you think Hillary Clinton should have characterized Donald in 16? I think that. We leaned into him as a threat to democratic norms, a, a threat to uh, certain populations. And did that prop him up, make him more powerful? Would it have been more effective to talk about him being weak? I thought that was a really good question. You know, I have the same reaction. I have this visceral reaction to this question that I have when people say Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate. 
Oh, totally. Um, preach. My response is, oh, <laughs> preach, yeah. I, it's like, compared to whom? Right. The man she beat by 4 million votes or the man she beat by 3 million votes? Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, you are in somebody, it. You, the, with the 4 million stat, that's real street cred. <laughs> Lord Clinton. Yeah, so I need to breathe through my nose here for a second. No, but it, it is a good question. But somebody asked me recently, you know, during the debate when Donald was effectively stalking right. Secretary Clinton, uh, should she have turned around? Right. I'm like, no, no. The moderator should have done his job right. and said, excuse me, Donald. Yeah. You're being a creep. Yeah. Get back to your fucking podium yeah. and let her answer the question. Right. But if she had hammered on his being, she would have been accused of making ad hominem attacks or something and being a shrill woman. You know who can do that, though? No. Vice President Biden can do. Yeah. Vice President Biden, I wish would. I mean, I don't have any direct connection yeah, you, got, him, you got a microphone please just call him donald don't afford him any respect he's done more to demean the offices of the presidency than anybody in history he doesn't deserve the respect afforded to the office call him donald and you know don't say he's weak stupid incompetent say his behavior is those things the way he approached COVID, it was weak it was incompetent it was xyz just hammer on you know they're like four words incapable uh pathetic that's a good one loser incapable weak pathetic loser those are your four words right because that's what made him dangerous that's what makes him dangerous i'm not entirely sure why the only person on the planet who should have sussed that out four years ago was hillary <laughs> god bless you mary trump staking claim to the, the, the spunky gal that went to sail camp and uh, cape cod <laughs> Thank you for writing the book. I just think that there's so much to be learned about women that find power in that situation. So really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. This was fantastic. And congratulations on the podcast. It's really amazing. Sari, are you there? I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. I think we had talked about this, how we were so interested in the tipping point and like, you know, when she decided, like, I just got to write this book. Um, and I found it really fascinating that it was after the New York Times reporters came to, to her house to ask for some of the documents because of her grandfather's will. And she has made it very clear she was a Clinton supporter in 2016. She made it very clear how angry she was. And she always knew that he wasn't that powerful and that he was, she says he's not a very intelligent man. She had all this information about him, just like, you know, psychological information that she collected from her family growing up. But she knew that she wouldn't be taken seriously unless she had actual physical right. evidence. Yeah. It's just like, of course. And that's why so many people don't disclose sexual assault. And it's like, Women have been told over and over that, you know, unless you have proof, your word is not going to be taken seriously. Um, so I just was like, so Yeah, but that. I find, and I think most people who've read the book and hear her talk about it, the, the financial stuff isn't as compelling. What's compelling is hearing about that family and the dynamics. She didn't need, right? She did not actually need the documents, the evidence that she thought she needed to be able to tell the story. Or, or did she? Like, that's the whole thing. It's like, in order to tell maybe the more interesting stuff, which is the psychological breakdown of her entire family, did she need the documents to right. give well, I think, that? I think this wow. is our choice, right? Like this is this is like our choice now right. is that you could say, well, gosh, it's too bad that she had to have that in order to get a story published. And I think that we should look at it and say, no, she did not need that. 
she had an interesting story to tell right. on her own. And, and other women's takeaways should be her story because she grew up in that family and had a perspective no one else did. Um, her perspective was enough. I mean, you could look at the world and be like, oh, it sucks that she felt she had to wait and that's how women are treated. Or we could look at her success and say, what's at the root of her success? The root of her success was a woman telling her own story. Full stop. <laughs> Other women go do the same. Right. Period. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think about some of the stuff she was saying at the end about um, him conceding and, and the, the system kind of working, which was surprising that she said I mean, that. I was surprised that she didn't have a darker view of that. Um, uh, so that was, right. you know, that was sort of reassuring is that, you know, there's only so much he can do and that he himself isn't really capable of scary things. I guess she doesn't have a lot of um, regard for his abilities in general. She thinks he holds no power. Yeah. She uh, his no his supporters could do dangerous things, but she didn't think that he would. I, thought that, you know, I was like, oh, all right. All right. Well, um, that was very interesting. And I, I know. feel badly that she's always constantly having to talk about her deranged uncle. But um, I'm glad that we got to hear a little bit about like her personal journey as well. Just Something About Her is a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Mary Trump for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>